Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 646. Uh, I am uh, doing a bunch more shows. Second shows for the Fun Comfortable Tour have been added in uh, Atlanta and Philadelphia and D.C. and Boston. And and then a bunch more cities are about to be added for the rest of the year. So there will be some Texas dates. Uh, and so check that out at FunComfortableTour.com. Uh, let's pop over to the Nerdist Community Corkboard. Blah, 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 blah. The Monster Popcorn Podcast would love for people to listen to their show. Uh, they discuss a movie every two weeks, dish out their own brand of insight, and try to keep things fun and interesting. They can be found online at monsterpopcorn.com. They're on iTunes, TuneIn, as well as Facebook, and Monster Pop HQ on the tweets. Also, Brandon Holthouse is hosting the fifth annual Pat's Crohn's Crew Benefit on April 19th in Baltimore, Maryland. He says his grandmother passed away in 2011 at the age of 77 due to Crohn's disease, and he and his family have hosted a benefit in her memory every year since she passed away. All the money raised goes to support the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. To make a donation, we're going to put a link in the description of this very episode. And finally, a young feller by the name of Andrew Derry has emailed events at Nerdist.com, as you can too, to make the community corkboard. Uh, I've been a big fan for a while. Love you guys. My name is Andrew Derry. I just released my first short story on Amazon.com. Could you please mention it? The name of the short story is Last Eden Echo Book One. And again, it's on Amazon.com. You can also find it on Facebook.com slash Echo Stories. This episode is Michael McKean, and I'm sure you can imagine uh, that it was difficult to suppress the comedy nerd from spewing out. Uh, Michael McKean has been in several of my favorite things of all times across all platforms. Uh, and he talks about a lot of stuff, a lot of great Spinal Tap stuff I hadn't heard before that, uh, that we talk about. But uh, two things I forgot to mention. I forgot to mention uh, The Big Picture, which is one of my favorite movies, but I just forgot to mention it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should. Christopher Guest uh, directed it. Kevin Bacon, Michael McKean, Martin Short. And uh, also, Zork the Grand Inquisitor. He plays Dalbaz of Girth, who basically is your narrator for... He's your guide 
through that game. That is one of my favorite games of all time, Zork the Grand Inquisitor, and I haven't found an emulator to be able to play it recently. Um, so if you have some suggestions for that, <laughs> please let me know. But uh, he is promoting Better Call Saul, which is fantastic, by the way. If you've not been watching Saul, you absolutely should. That's on AMC Mondays at 10 p.m. I was nervous. I didn't. I didn't know if people were going to be like, "I'm such a Breaking Bad fan. I don't know how. I don't know how I have room for Saul in my life." And you know what? There is room for Saul in your life. The show is fantastic. Odenkirk's killing it, and McKean is great, and uh, he's also super fun on this podcast. And now here's Nerds Podcast number six four six with the brilliant Michael McKean. Now entering Nerdist.com. Dickens, you know. Do you know Patton could actually like his, but his just, output is high. But then it would mean he wouldn't. He, uh, he could probably. We need to do stand up. He's also got a child, you know. <laughs> he does. That does take yeah. up a lot of extra comedy it writing does. time. Because I, I remember Patton would. Uh, I remember one one time in particular where I did a show with him on a Tuesday, and the following Tuesday he had twenty completely new minutes. Well, that we're yeah. all amazing. No, he's completely inventive. But the thing is, he t- a, a book needs a premise, and once he locks into that premise, he kind of has to mine there for a while. That's true. He can't go. He can't suddenly go. Hey, you remember when you know? <laughs> he, and he can do that on the stage. But a book is a certain kind of thing, you know. Right. He, he's writing a book ostensibly about his film addiction. Right. It's really just about Patton's years between 1995 and 2005, or whatever yeah. it is. And it's just interesting. So what I say is, prove us wrong, Patton. Write a book a week. Write a book a week. What are you afraid of? Why are we, why are we calling out? <laughs> Who Patton? is covering up? Yes. Seriously. <laughs> what are you hiding, Patton Oswald? Are we okay for sound? <laughs> We're good. <laughs> are we good? Katie, are we good? <clears throat> Everything's good. Right. I am so beyond excited and thrilled and freaking out to meet you in person. Beyond all those lie death. No. <laughs> so please be careful. No, Isn't I it? intentionally left the writer's room to come do this podcast. A lot yeah, of times I God. will I was going to say it's a little out. cluttered in here. It is a little And it's not even as cluttered as it could be because there's usually a third yeah. guy on the podcast. Yeah. You ever notice those morning shows? I maybe just don't encounter them too much. The morning radio shows, if, you, if you've ever done live oh, appearances... Yeah. You go in the, you walk in and you count the number of people in the room and you go, it's going to be nine shitty. <laughs> or 11 shitty. Levels. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then you go, what market am I in? Where am I again? Oh, yeah, I'm there. Hey, uh, Michael McKean, do you remember when you were in that movie, Spinal Tap? You, that would be great. Instead, the main guy is like, hmm, what's the, uh, what's the deal with that? I mean, it's that guy. It's the guy who's already swallowing his well, kidneys. You know, he's saying what we're all thinking. What is the deal with that i mean to succinctly break it down into its philosophical basics <laughs> well i i don't li- I, I don't listen to people talking in the in the morning too mm-hmm. much unless it's the goon show of course <laughs> now that kind now that's to me that's talk baby that is the best <laughs> no uh but I, mainly i listen to music when i'm you know in control like in sure. my own car and stuff but uh you know i i there's that thing. There's that job you have where you're basically reminding people what time it is and how late they're going to be, and, and, <laughs> and that traffic is on the, the door. Yeah, and, the, and what the traffic is. Exactly right. 
So uh, it's just not really for me. Uh, we sent our intern to go buy a vibrator. That's uh, like, oh, God. And it's sent to your mom's house. <laughs> oh, come oh, my, on. This my. guy. I don't even know. I, I, my, my favorite story about doing, because I've had to, I mean, I've had to do a million of those, too. And there was one in Texas. I think it was Texas. And if you listen to the show, you thought there were like nine guys on it. But it was oh. one guy doing like seven different character voices. And to see them in person, I was like, well, they all sound like they're coming out of the same guy. But when I went and did the stand-up show that night, people were like, did you hear the one guy arguing with the other? They had no idea that it was the same guy. I'm like, how can you people not know it was the same well, guy? That's, that's the, that was the genius of Phil Hendry. Yes. His, when he was really interacting. I mean, he's still a genius. But when he was interacting with people on the phone... And he would get, he would have three completely fake people in the studio with him or on the line with him. And then he would haul in somebody who's listening and saying, did he just say, did he just say that, whatever it is, that Babe Ruth was black or whatever the premise was, the guy, and they'd get on and he'd fight with these guys. And then as Phil himself, he would moderate the the argument, you know, between, you know, his two made up people that he's also doing and the the real person on the line. It was just And you'd always think... At this point, people know. Like, they must know. And then, but he would always find people that they would always stumble across it and have no idea. Well, the way he put it was the people who listen to me, meaning Phil Hendry, are not the people who generally listen to one thing all the time. They just go with their radio dial until they find something that sounds angry <laughs> and they stay with it. You know, and it's true. It's like you find the suckers, you find the people who are taking life very seriously mm-hmm. and they always they got their mouths are wider than anyone's for the big hook. Yeah, Tom Likas was an android that was engineered by Industrial Light and Magic. He was not actually a real That's person. True. That's true. Absolutely true. Well, it actually took 45 people to operate. 45 people to operate the puppet of Tom. <laughs> so not really, not really cost efficient. Yeah, I mean, it was... They didn't have medical, though. No. No medical coverage. It, the but radio it sounded amazing. It cost $240 million a year to run that radio show. And in the end, I don't think it was worth it. But, you know, wow, I'm not a radio guy anymore, so who knows. Yeah. Um, but you're on, you're, doing, you're on Saul now. Yes. You're about to be. You've done it, but now it's about to air. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it starts Sunday night. Sunday night. the 8th of February. Yes. And the second episode is on the next night. Yes, because I normally do a show in the time slot that Saul's going to be on, and they're sliding us back an hour to premiere Saul right after Walking Dead, which I think ah, is a, a very smart idea to get eyes on it. And one thing that I know Vince has been saying to a lot of people is like, uh, everyone, it's not it's not Breaking Bad. I just want you to know it's not Breaking Bad. So uh, just uh, it's a different story, different guy. So everyone, very good. Oh, I love Vince. Oh, so everyone should understand that it is that it is a different. It's you know if you're watch to watch, especially if you're a Breaking Bad fan, but don't go. How come there's no dot well, look, dot dot? It's first of all, Breaking Bad was for all its myriad wonders was also a, a crime show, a show that revolved around crime. Mm-hmm. This is a show that revolves around the law and the practitioners of the law. It's just, it really is, it's a slightly different angle. It's also uh, six years before the begin before 2008, the beginning of uh, the Breaking Bad years. Right. So, you know, Saul is, is Jimmy McGill. <laughs> uh, he's not Saul yet. So, you know, I, I think that it's going to be very interesting to see people take... Uh, a run at this and you know this, there there will be people who will never forgive this show for not being breaking bad right or not being breaking bad too um 
But he, he, Vincent always talked about this. He always talked about going back with that character, with Solomon, into his roots. Right. So, anyway. it, If anyone could do it, I think, not, I mean, even with the cast, but Vince, I just adore that guy. Yeah. He's, yeah. So, he's so brilliant and lovely. And, he uh, is. He is. I did a, uh, a couple of, uh, of uh, X-Files that he uh, wrote, and he wrote, uh, he and Frank Spotnitz and a bunch of others, I don't know how, it, they worked things at X-Files. Mm-hmm. But it was a show I really liked, and then, you know, all of a sudden I'm doing this show, and it was a, a two-parter and everything, and it was this, everyone seemed to be really enjoying doing what they did, like I thought people always would. And people on a set are not always really, really digging what they do. <laughs> right. And there are a lot of people who've been at the same job, say at a studio or something, and it, it's become kind of like working a press. You know, it's really, there's that kind of ennui that sets in. But these are people who are saying, hey, we're getting to make movies, and they had the money for it. Because X-Files looked great. Yeah. I mean, it, every week it was like a little movie, you know. So I was just really impressed with them. And you know, Vince and I talked, to, you know, over the ensuing years and, you know, about doing various things. And I was usually not available or it didn't work out, whatever. And this time it just worked out. It's very nice. Well, I, you, because, I mean, if someone were to go to your IMDb page, it, it is probably one of the more extensive IMDb pages. Of... I'll never catch up to Mel Blanc. <laughs> you can't possibly. You cannot catch Mel Blanc. he didn't have to Blank. physically go anywhere. No. And he, got, he was the only person who got credit in cartoons in those days. Yeah. Ever. So he, he could literally knock out a bunch of different, you know, it would take you a year to do That's three right. jobs. He could crank them out in an afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Well, have you ever it's not seen fair? Some... Fuck that guy. Why are we getting mad at Mel Blanco? There are some sites with musicians' credits on it, and you look at some of those guys, and there were guys who literally did five hundred sessions a year. Wow. <laughs> Wait, what session? Well, it might have meant you know just coming in and laying a part on top of this Frito Lay commercial that you know we don't not quite happy with. We need a little extra lead guitar, but no. Double double scale, whatever his his usual rate is, and he goes down the road. You know, I would love to know what really amazing guitarists are. Or like, is there is Stevie Ray Vaughan secretly on like a Dove commercial? <laughs> well, Stevie Ray Vaughan was he played uh, lead guitar on David Bowie's Let's Dance. Yeah, yes, he did, uh, and that's used in. The, yeah, we we hear that all the time. But the yeah. Vic Flick is the guy that was sort of everywhere. He played the. Uh, he played the guitar tone you hear for the James Bond theme. Oh, he, sure, yeah, That's yeah. Where I know that. He um, he also helped Jimmy Page out in some sessions. <laughs> he also played on the orchestral soundtrack to Hard Day's Night. All the music that you would hear that was yes, interweaving sure. that was Vic Flick. Also, so was he? But he was freelance. He wasn't yeah. signed because those signed were all different would just studios. Do all and these everything. different things in England. It's too bad that Rick Flick never worked with my friend, the bass player Bob Glob. Real guy. I'm actually. He's no. He's he's an awesome. Bass player, yeah. and his name is Bob Glove. So Rick Flick, Vic, Bob, Vic, Flick. Vic Flick, excuse me. By the way, that is a great name for a bass player because a bass is kind of globby. It's, yeah, it's kind of and, and Bobby, and it's all about with Vic Flick. It's the flick of that wrist. That's right, and Glob. Yeah. No wow. one would believe. Like if you pitch that. I want to do a sketch about a guitar player named Flick and a bass player named Glob. You're like, that's hacky. That who? That's so on the nose. <laughs> well, let's no, not write it then. Let's, not, we're not let's just it. say we've had that experience we've and we move on with our lives. <laughs> past it. I, uh, I was a huge fan of... Um, I had the Lenny and the Squigtones uh, because it, Dr. Demento played Foreign Legion of Love uh, oh, yeah. so when I was growing up. And, uh, and you guys were fantastic. Like oh. a really great... 
musical? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously people know that uh, they know about Spinal Tap, but I think more people should dig deeper and see that there is a there is a farther reaching history of musical comedy in your past. I suppose. <laughs> Did you not? You don't think so? Well, I always I wanted to make a garage band album. I didn't want to do a live album. You know, I wanted to just like really put it out really small form and 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 make it look like these guys actually did it. Like it was DIY. Yeah. You know? And it said, no, no, because the Blues Brothers album was a big hit. And Neil Bogart of Casablanca says, no, it's like you got to do a live album. And it was, it was okay. It was okay. But you know what? In those days, in the late 70s and early 80s, um, the music business was a little wakey wakey, if mm-hmm. you know what I mean. <laughs> and it kind of, they, people kind of wore you out. Uh-huh. Uh, and Casablanca was an, uh, an incredible place. This is, it was up on Sunset. And uh, you would go in, the, and I actually went in there one time with my, with David and uh, our manager, or David whatever, Lander, yeah. David Lander, <clears throat> one other person, <clears throat> and we walked uh, into the uh, the Casablanca building. We were already we had been working there for a while. We'd been working on the thing, hadn't come out yet, uh, and it was the day that Hot Stuff broke mm-hmm. the single. The day the single dropped, Donna Summer's Hot Stuff. And I swear to God, as we walked, it was a courtyard situation with two stories. And it's like, you know, built like, kind of like a motel, which is probably what it originally was. But it was the record company. You walk in there, and it's blaring from every speaker, <laughs> wow. and everyone is dancing. Every, literally everyone was dancing. It was like the opening that one might have imagined for Can't Stop the Music 2. Of course. You oh know, sweeping, and there we were. Was and that it, the Village People movie? It was the village. Yeah, I remember that movie. Yes, indeed. Were you in that? No. Okay. <laughs> I, we had we had we had severed ties with Casablanca by that time. <laughs> That's an amazing movie. It isn't Bruce Jenner's in it. Bruce Jenner, and, um, Steve um, um, Steve Gutenberg. Steve Gutenberg's in it. And uh, Valerie, Valerie Perrine. Perrine. Yes, whatever. Uh, yes, and the Village People, and uh, who people might also know as Miss Tessmacher. Uh, from, from Superman? I really thought you were oh, going to say who people might also know as the policeman, the Indian chief, the... Well, that's from the solo albums they did. <laughs> I remember yes. them. The, the, the theoretical creation of the village people in, in Can't Stop the Music. That movie... Oh, it's God, amazing, isn't it? I saw it when it... I, for some reason, I saw it when it came out, and... And it was and it was around a time when um, like band movies like like Sergeant Pepper's, which was oh, uh, really yeah. not pretty a, dire, not a great movie. Yeah, uh, came out with the with the the Bee Gees and uh, and yeah. and, uh, and so they did not have a great success rate with the you know here's a fictitious account of how a band got together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, those are the days. <laughs> now, of course, Kiss we, had one. That yeah. Was crazy. Was there a Kiss? There how was how a Kiss, Kiss got together movie? There was a Kiss movie. Starring Kiss. Starring Kiss, yeah. but I think maybe I think there I feel like there was an element where an evil scientist created oh, a robot Kiss band. Yes. Um Phantom of the Park. Wow. Originally called Phantom of the Palisades. Oh. Or Phantom of Palisades Park, one of those. And Palisades said, please don't. (laughs) (laughs) We're not like Kleenex. You can't just use it whenever you want. Please don't put that indelible stamp. Wait, was Uh, that the one that Paul Williams is in? Paul is in Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, he's a fan of the Paradise. Yeah, Yeah, I got my I got my Phantoms. Completely different, like weird seventies rock opera movie. He's a nice guy. He was just on a couple days ago. Really, such a sweetheart. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. I've, I've run into him maybe five times in my life, and he was always kind of. 
you know, boy, you're kind of an impressively nice man. Yeah, you know? yeah, because cool. he, you know, he, when when he was younger, he was uh, he uh, he had some issues to work through. But and yes, then he did. Thankfully, he survived those and became yeah, unlike uh, other child actors. <laughs> did not never. It's never. not. It rarely no. it rarely works out. No. I would like to see the theoretical um, construction of uh, Justin Bieber as a movie about how he is uh, the collection of. <laughs> Just, I feel like there's a Gargamel laboratory somewhere <laughs> where someone put. All- Imagine how much he would be worth if he were still in the original package. I mean, you know, they made such a Canada really fucked that up when they took him out of there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They should have left him in his mother, which but would I- have been the original packaging. <laughs> left Is that him too in little? his mother. Is that too little? No, no, no. Okay, good. It's, it's uncomfortable, but okay, it's, good. it's not good, too little. Good. I'm, I'm okay with that. Okay. Um, so when, because uh, initially, you notice see. we never really seem to talk about anything. I'm kind of liking that. Yeah. Do you want to talk about this something specific? No, 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 no. I, you, it's like you, you, we, we keep meaning well, but Do it's we more interesting to, to talk I'll than it what. is to be, to be interviewed, well, to be honest this, with Michael, you. So I hope you're okay We don't with interview, that. really. We have conversations. I know. I've heard and let, let, me, let me just give you the matrix code behind how I, how I do this. I know a lot of things, particularly about you, and I will start bouncing around those things. And then eventually we'll find something that will dig deeper, much in the way that you would in a conversation. All right. I would add this proviso. Please. It should be something that you really want to know. Okay. And, uh, and if, it's, if it isn't, I'll say you don't want to know that. Okay. All right. Great. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> well, I would have done anyway. But, then I, but what if I was like, but now I really want to know. And you're like, does that then count? Then it'll be okay. I, I yeah, say, yeah, it'll I, be I will, I will say the most I ever spent on a DVD was uh, the Criterion Spinal Tap, which went out of print. And I had that's like, the with I, the in character, that's with the in character and out of character commentary. The well, in character is the one that they have on everything. Yes, the Blu-ray release has the in character. And I was like, I want to hear I, that was great, and then I wanted to hear the out of character one. And I remember, I, I it was like eighty-two dollars, and when I first moved to uh, L.A., it was in one of the cases at uh, at Amoeba. Right, and do uh, not steal. And I was like, I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't afford it, and then yeah. like. It was only like three years ago where I finally was like, I'm going to walk into that and buy that DVD, and I have it, and it's, it was everything I ever wanted it to be. Well, thank but it was $120 by the time I bought Holy it. Holy hell. <laughs> Inflation. Oh, my God. Well, do you know how much Superman number five costs now? <laughs> At the time, it was a, it was a dime. <laughs> but it's gone up. It's, gone it's actually up. less. Uh, the point where it was actually less, like eight cents. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about. Um, the credibility gap. Okay. I would love to hear about your early days with Sketch. Yeah. Because I know you and David were in a group with Harry Shearer. Right. And so I just want to hear I just want to hear what got you especially at that time, was it were you inspired by like Firesign Theater? Like what was it that made you guys go, Hey, we're a sketch comedy group and in the seventies we can go do something with that? Yeah. Well, I, hmm, the first real exposure to sketch comedy was uh probably beyond the fringe for mm-hmm. me. And it was very British, and I didn't get a lot of it when I was, you know, 12, 13, whatever. Well, yeah, 13 or 14, let's say. And, but I thought, oh, this is really economical. They don't have to dress up so much, and they da 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 da. And I get the idea. And I would just see pieces on TV. I didn't see it in in a theater. Um, But, uh, you know, at college, I did a little bit with Chris. Chris Guest and I weren't in the same group. We were just, you know, arbitrary groups and we were both studying acting at NYU 
And um, so we were friends, and you know, we, we wrote songs together and everything, but we didn't really interact because we didn't have the same classes. But this guy, Tom Leopold, who is uh, maybe you know, is, he's, a, he's a producer, writer, novelist, very, very funny man. Um, he, uh, he, and I did a lot of uh, stuff in Omar Shapley's improvisational class. It was a class called Games Improvisation. So that was kind of fun. Then I got to L.A. because David Lander, whom I had met at, uh, at Carnegie Tech uh, earlier. Carnegie Tech is what they called it before the melon money came sure, in. Sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, so he had a ra- he was working with these guys in, on this radio show in L.A. So in 1970, I came out to L.A. And I became kind of a, a, a frequent guest, you know. It was Richard Beebe, David L. Lander, and Harry Shearer were the main, you know, the, the, the main flyers. And I was the stowaway. So, um, you know, eventually we were all working uh, uh, on another, an FM station, got a little freer, and we started doing stuff. That was the credibility gap. They were actually, actually started in 68. A guy named Lou Irwin and uh, Len Chandler, who was a singer-songwriter, and it was like kind of, kind of a precursor to what it became. Because Harry and Richard and David and myself were all really into that kind of radio comedy, especially Harry, who had been on the radio since the age 10. Used to so was that voice draft he was in? Uh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in, on the Jack Benny show. He, he played, he was one of the, you know, the Beverly Hills Beavers, the Boy Scout uh, Monkeys. Wow. So, um, and he, you know, he's that guy who just really knows radio. So uh, I kind of became a radio comedian. And then to expand on our lack of success, we wanted <laughs> to exploit it, as it were. We decided to go onto the stage in the early seventies, seventy two, three, four. We did a lot of a lot of stage work, opening for big rock acts and and headlining on our own coffee houses and places like that. That wasn't. And how did the, how was that going? How was comedy opening for rock acts going at the time? It depended very much on who the act was. The first, the worst experience, we opened for Richie Havens, okay? Richie Havens, not terribly well-known. He died a couple of years ago. A very big kind of, you know, kind of well-put-together black guy, you know, who really kind of had, still had the feel of a street singer, which is kind of what his, his, his persona was, and it was kind of where he was from. And he sang a lot of, you know, big... Ballads. You look him up. It's he's an interesting character, but he was very much a for an audience full of people, especially in San Diego. It was about half sailors and half just greasers, and <laughs> and a lot of a lot of hippies. And uh, and it never goes well when a population is half sailors and something else. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they were guys. That's that's what the way you find San Diego. And a, a local market gave everyone an orange on the way oh, into the geez. gig. Sure. So they they weren't crazy about us. Oh, and we oh. yeah we saw some orange oh. action. We had a, never give the audience a projectile. I wasn't our idea. <laughs> um, and Richie was very nice, and his his entourage, which you know four or five guys, just kept looking at us like, mm, that's so sad that you have to do this. <laughs> but we had a little signal, and it was uh, it was like a trapdoor signal. If we were in the middle of a sketch and the audience was either yawning or yelling at us to get off or throwing oranges, uh, in this case, we would just do this little nod and we'd go, we'd cut right to the last number, right to the last. Oh, interesting. Which was a musical number. We couldn't hear them anymore. You know, which usually ended with David Lander going, fuck you, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Fuck you very much. (laughs) Fuck you all. You're less than kind. And then going, (laughs) 
and then off we went. My favorite favorite part of watching Michael do that is the fact that there was a real microphone in front of him. He chose to pantomime the microphone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You, can uh, you take caught the me. Guy out of the sketch theater, but you no. can't take the sketch theater. No, no. He's going to do space work. You know what? If I had a hairbrush, I would have used that. So fuck you. <laughs> fuck you, man. Fuck you very much. Oh, a life dream come true. So then, how do you guys go? I mean, were for, with Laverne and Shirley, were you pitched as a as a as a, a sketch duo, or no. did you? How did that work? Well, we were do, we were doing the act, you know, and uh, Richard Beebe left the act. It was just we were the power trio uh, of uh, Shearer, uh, Lander, and McKeon. And we would do, we played the improv when it was just first breaking in as the improv. Mm-hmm. Before that, we had done in 74, when Nixon was resigning, when was, that whole Watergate thing was happening, we had kind of a residency at what is now the improv. It was called the Pitchell Players at the time. Uh, long story. And uh, so we got to cover all that on a daily basis. So we would, it was like ripping and reading the news, which is what we used to do at the radio stations when we were doing news sketches. Uh, and it was really, really fun. So it was like there was a time briefly where we the satire was kind of concentrating on us. We were the epicenter because we were, you know, we were transmitting the same thing that people were reading in the paper. And it was really nice and everything. And toward the end of that time, it was sort of, well, now what? You know, now what do we do? And we did, you know, we did radio commercials. We did a couple of other commercial things. And then Penny Marshall uh, sold this show. She did. She and Cindy Williams had done these two characters on Happy Days, and her brother Gary Marshall, and Lowell Gans and Mark Rothman, who were the characters, uh, the uh, writers who created those two characters. Um, they said, "Well, we need a show." So they did a, a, a kind of a presentation film using st- stuff from their Happy Days appearances, and uh, uh, Mr. Eddie Mecca was the only other character wow. seen in that presentation film. And it was a couple little scenes that showed up in the first episode. And Penny said, you know, we need two things. We need writers, and we need maybe a couple of other characters that are not so much, you know, what we have here. So Penny said, you know, you guys do those guys. Because David and I have been doing those guys since we met in our <laughs> teens. We had always done those, those characters under various names, and, but never commercially. We did toward the end of the credibility gaps run. We actually did a couple of pieces, a couple of Lenny and Antony pieces, and uh, so Penny said she she threw a party to celebrate the selling of this show, and some of the producers were there. And she invited us, and at one point, Rob Reiner, who was married to Penny at the time, just turned to us and said, "Go ahead, do it. Go do it." Didn't have to say anything more than that. He just kind of sat back, and we did. About 15 minutes that we had never done before and that we will never, we have never done again, never did, used again, of the two guys discussing whether they should go to Butler School or not. <laughs> that's, all, that's all we had. And it was like we had the right house. Everyone was, everyone dug it. And so that Monday we came in and Gary said, okay, we'll hire you as writers, uh, apprentice writers, because you're not in the guild yet, but we'll do whatever they have to do, you know. And maybe we'll try and work those characters in. So we wrote ourselves into the first show, <laughs> of course, because we were no dummies. Yeah, and then I, I recommend if anyone as a supplement to that story, uh, read Penny's book that she just did last year. Uh, oh, My mother is nuts. I've it's, been saving it. It's so good. Oh, it's she's so awesome. Good. She is. She's a queen. It really is. She's fantastic. But it pretty much was. Did you feel the effects of? Is it one of those things where on Thursday night we were on television and on Friday it was crazy? Um, well, a little bit. 
uh, Lowell Gans is a, is a, a lovely guy, and he's, he was one of the creators of the show, and he's gone on to write a lot of you know big movies. And, and um, uh, anyway, really nice guy. And so he came the next day. The, the overnights were ridiculous. We were the number one show uh, of that. So we were the number one show of that week. So when the weekly ratings came out, uh, which I guess was Wednesday, the next day, we were number one for the week. And I've never seen Lowell more worried. His face had fallen, even kind of a lugubrious look to him anyway. But his, he was like, I don't know what this terrifies me. <laughs> and I said, why on earth would it do that? Well, what if they all? What if everyone saw it and hated it? <laughs> and then they're not. He really had no good answer for it, but it was because he couldn't really describe the worry. But I thought it was a pretty good sign, and the fact that we were, you know, Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley were one and two, you know, for like three years was a very good thing. Um, but I looked so radically different in my regular life than I did on TV. That didn't get recognized. It didn't, you know, there wasn't like this sudden turn of the page like happened with, you know, people like Robin, you know, because Robin and Mork look pretty much the same, (laughs) right? you know, and he couldn't, I'm sure he couldn't go out on the street. Penny too, you know? I mean, it really, uh, I remember watching, I mean, I would watch that, that com the, the Happy Days, Laverne Mm -hmm. and Shirley combo. Yeah. And, and I also, uh. I remember watching and getting very excited when the door would fly open and it was you guys like there were episodes where I was like, when are you going to get to the, you know? So was there ever a talk of let's spin these guys off or let's. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever told this or not. Um, we had been on the air six times. The show had been on the air six times and the, and the, the, the guys were getting really nice response and everything. So immediately Fred Silverman, who ran ABC at the time came to Gary and says, spin them off now, spin them off now. So Gary said, okay, we want to spin you guys off. We want to do an army show because nobody's doing an army show. So Lenny and Squiggy in the army is basically what we wrote it in about, there was a week, we had a hiatus week. So we had shot, I guess the first nine and six had been on the air, seven and whatever. And uh, so we had a hiatus week. So we wrote it and put it on its feet, a presentation film about 15 minutes long with a bunch of additional gags from the first bunch of Laverne and Shirley shows, you know, just in kind of a real clumsy flashback chunk. And we did it and had it done by Friday. Holy and shit. so gave it to him. And by Monday, Fred said, no. <laughs> and that was it. And they went with the, they went with a show called Holmes and Yo-Yo. I remember that show mm-hmm. with the yeah. with the robot cop. Robot, yeah, John uh, John Shock. John Shock, yeah, yeah, who's a super guy. By Hang the way. on, how did I miss Holmes and Yo-Yo? You never sounds... saw that show? Didn't run very long. No, it was no. A, it was a basically like a grizzled detective and his and he had a robot yeah. partner and uh... John Shock. You know John Shock yeah, is right. Yeah. This yeah. sounds amazing. Well, it wasn't amazing. I haven't. <laughs> I haven't seen it since I was a kid, so I yeah. can't remember if anyway. I'm remembering it as amazing. <laughs> no, we had a couple of jokes that we had later cannibalized elsewhere, you know, that were pretty good. But it was not something I'm, I, I had no regrets at the time that it didn't go because we didn't think a military show would be all that interesting after a while. And about two years down the line, David and I wrote another one where the guys, it was basically Lenny and the Squig Tones mm-hmm. hit the road and hitchhike from Milwaukee or from L.A., to Newark, which is where Lenny uh, Squiggy might be finding his father or something. Who knows what yeah. the story was? I don't remember. But um, it, be, it later became irrelevant. 
But uh, that was kind of it. It was like a, it was a band, you know, tra- traveling. So, but it's a, it's amazing to have. Been... They said no to that one. They you just... said no that no that one too. No, no. Uh, we we liked it. We actually we wrote it and we thought hey, this could be really funny. And we had we knew the people we wanted to be in it and everything. And so it never got made. They just said oh, I don't know. These guys are just kind of such losers. We said yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> they didn't couldn't see him at the and I, I understand that it's fine. But that's why it's so. I mean, to have been on a show and been like fixtures of pop culture, it's very easy for the rest of the business to then go. Well, you you guys don't need to work ever again because you are just those guys, and yeah. now people associate you with those guys. And so, you know, I, I what I really hope people understand is like years of comedy training and focusing on craft and focusing on character work. It's like the the craft of it is always going to bail you out. Like if you get lucky enough to get on a show and then mm-hmm. you're just associated, and like, well, if you don't really do anything else, then yeah, that's kind of going to be it. But you were able to break through that. Well, yeah, and I think it, uh, I, I I got out at the right time, you know, of, of that. I didn't I didn't go right into another series, um, you know. It, it, that time was really sort of interesting. Because it was uh, the the last days of Laverne and Shirley, I was very I was barely on the last season. Practically, no one was on. Well, they the went last to California, season. right? Oh no, they'd been in California for three years already. Oh, that last season, Cindy was gone, Penny was gone for much of it, I was gone for much of it. I had it in my deal with Gary Marshall. I went to him personally. I said, "Look, if we sell this movie we've been trying to make for two years, I got to be out of here." So I actually put it in my con. He put it in my contract. If Michael McKean's, you know, if they get a go on their Spinal Tap movie, <laughs> then he doesn't have to do these last six shows or whatever it was. It was an amazing deal, and he did it because he was a good guy, and you know, still is. So um, uh, anyway, those those last days were peculiar. But the best thing was the next two things that people saw me in: Young Doctors in Love and Spinal Tap. Were neither were anything like what I had been doing on TV. If I had gone into another goofy neighbor thing, or you know, yeah. it's like, you know, I'm 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 kind of glad it worked out that way. Because you know, if I died right after Tap came out, people couldn't say he could only do one thing, right? You know, uh, and there are some people who can do a lot more than one thing, but they feel comfortable doing one thing because it's there's a check right. attached, so they keep doing the same thing. But for Which you, is fine if you're Cary Grant. <laughs> you know, but, but you, you need know. to keep doing different things, right? You feel like you need yeah, to keep doing different yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the Better Call Saul is, is, is good because um, – not to <laughs> – I'm, I'm telling you the show is good. Please. But it's good for me. Uh, it is good, by the way. But it, it's a really cool thing to do because it's not like anything I've ever done. And um, it's just a, a different guy. And, you know, you have a tendency to get into these boxes. I did the Brady Bunch movie. Yeah, of course. And I played the anti-Brady. So I got a lot of a lot of attention about other movies that were kind of exactly the same kind of guy. The guy, the asshole, who's in a lot, has a lot of power and is pushing our heroes around. And, right. And, and I, would, I got to the point where I would say, oh, I know where this is going. And I'd go to the back pages just to see what I wind up covered in at the end. <laughs> You know, tar feathers, poop. shit. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, and it was it. My instinct was unerring. You know, so I'm kind of glad I didn't kind of fall into that kind of thing again. You know, uh, that was a, if. By the way, rewatched the Brady Bunch not long ago. It was pretty up. funny. It does hold up? Yeah, it does hold up. It was the most well. genius way to have to have covered that as a movie, right? 
because it hit every single like it got the people who watched the original series. It got kids to yeah. watch it because it was funny and kind of slapsticky, but also. But then there was this weird layer of like <laughs> yeah. bondage yeah. adult yeah. humor yeah. at the this, same like, time. Weird time vortex the family's in for no reason, right? Yeah. Like, well, and the, and they're the only ones. Yes. It was just it's and how not, fucking dysfunctional they were even, at the oh, core of it. Beauty yeah. of it, I think the my favorite part of it is like the whole fact that Marsha is still fixated on Davy Jones. Yes, <laughs> and Davy Jones comes on, but it's 1990s Davy Jones. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just does the same. I think that's one of those things where when they're writing that, they go, "That doesn't matter. It's funny. Like it's yeah. funny that they yeah. don't that they don't acknowledge it." Oh, I got to work with Janelle's Cox. Yeah, who, mm-hmm. who yeah. is amazing. Who is always amazing. awesome. Yeah. She's just she's just one of those people who's just who just like hooks into this kind of weirdness, you know. I just adore her. Yeah, so and Gary really Cole was amazing. Oh, Gary. Well, also I think Michael might be the last of the movie villains that is his goal is to build a strip mall. <laughs> <laughs> I know. A section of the nineties. Like, yeah. Little... Now the strip malls have been built. <laughs> now the strip malls have been built. Now we have too many. Oh man. Oh man. That was actually it was a funny movie. A I haven't seen movie. it since it yeah. came out, but I, I remember liking it. Why do you think? Because uh, you know. I, I, I find that a lot of uh, not necessarily stand-up comedians, but a lot of a lot of strong comic actors, improv people, sketch people, also are, are pretty amazing dramatic actors at the same time. I think. But why do you think that comedy, which I would estimate to be harder than drama, but I'm biased. Why do you think that that doesn't get the kind of academic recognition of like a a tearjerker? It's like you know, comedy. It's a lot harder to make people laugh. I don't know. I don't know. It's just a matter of, uh, I mean, you can make people see fluid from their eyes, then you're a genius. But if you just make them wet their pants, <laughs> then you're, you're kind of working class or something. Right. I don't know. There, maybe there's just some, maybe laughter is, is as common as it needs to be, you know? Ah, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, I, I've, I've seen gags and heard gags on, in recorded stuff and read jokes where I was overwhelmed by their intelligence. I laughed out loud, but I was like more invigorated by their intelligence. But I think in general, people think that comedy is a little dumber, you know? That we're I mean, how does, clowns. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I don't know, I suppose so, you know, but some are. You it know. Is part of it's how subjective comedy is. Like what is funny to someone might not mm. be funny to someone I think else. it's more of a, I think it's kind of what you're saying where it's just, it, it doesn't, uh, it's not recognized as being elevated. It's like, oh, the commoners, it's like vaudeville. Like, well, it's maybe this is the, these are, these are what the plebs are doing. This isn't yeah. high art, you know? No, I guess so. I don't know. I, it, it's one of those things. You know, we don't want to poke the dead frog well, we're too not many times. we solve this. So uh, <laughs> we're going to figure this out. Guess. Put the coffee well, on. <laughs> I think everything, you know, Steve Martin, Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin made this movie. All, all of me. All of me. One of my favorites. Very funny movie. And one of the most brilliantly funny comic performances. Yeah. Of all time, and it's like, why is why doesn't this guy, you know, why, why didn't why just to take an example, why wasn't he nominated for an Oscar for that? Right. I think there was something about, oh, that's Steve doing that thing. Half his body is a woman, and have to, yeah, because that's so easy, right? A, and I don't know. There's a there's a thousand, and every now and then, Kevin Klein is one of the few I can think of who got a for an out and out comedy performance got an Oscar for In and Out, right? No, for. Uh, Fish called Wanda. Uh, Wanda. Wanda. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but how many others? How many yeah. others for a just you know, 
You know. Also, Steve is acting to no one in all of me because most of it is Lily Tomlin projected in a reflected image. So he's basically just acting at himself. Yeah. It's yeah, it's 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 kind of a remarkable thing. Um, for Spinal Tap, how did you guys know? Is is there a, is there a mountain of footage that no one will ever see? No, you can find it. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it. There. A lot, there's a lot of footage no one should ever see. There was a whole subplot with uh, where they brought another guitar in to play, a guitarist in to play for for Nigel when he leaves the band, and it's this young Turk who's the, probably 22, and the guy was really good, really kind of rocking. He had one of those elastic bands on his guitar, <laughs> elastic strap on his guitar, so he'd kind of like bounce it almost to the floor, and I mean, he had all these tricks and everything. And so it's me trying to, like, be the alpha male on stage with this guy. <laughs> and he's just playing the shit out of me. And I'm just – and I come up behind him at one time to share the microphone. He bangs me with his guitar <laughs> neck, you know. <laughs> so there was a couple of – and they weren't, like, great. They, they didn't have the same, you know – they weren't as useful. There's a whole subplot with Cherie Curry. Uh, of the Runaways, mm-hmm. where she plays uh, a girl named Stella Zine, uh, lead singer of The Dose, which is this kind of punk band. And she's the one who gives us all the little coal sores. Oh! So there's that whole plot. But her whole plot had to go for time, because introducing in and out, it wasn't that much to it. It was just we see her on stage looking really hot and doing this number <laughs> and uh, at a sound check. And all the guys are, I'm going to have some of that. So we all wind up with the sores, <laughs> except for the drummer. He's the only one. But He's the, the only beauty one. of that is that joke still, still plays throughout right. the but movie. Maybe, so yeah. how do you know when you have that much, you know, and, and I guess this is, you know, expanded to the subsequent Christopher Guest collaborations, but, you know, when you kind of have your framework for what you're doing, and I'm assuming you're improvising a good chunk of it, right? All Most of- or all of it? There's there are four or five um, written lines in the play in the play in the in the movie and everything else wow. was improvised. Name there were of course names of things and right. you know uh, certain reference punch lines. You know, uh, like my love pump yeah. didn't come quite right out of the air. It was just it was that was the part of the construction of the joke in that case. But all the dialogue was improvised. So know? is it, so a lot of the writing almost happens in the post production process, right? Because you're trying sure. to build the you're trying to take all of the shit that you guys did yeah. in the moment and figure out how does this lay out as a yeah. story. Rob had about eighty hours to work with. Wow. Now a lot of now if that if you shrink it even a little bit, it's because there are two sometimes three passes at each scene. Mm-hmm. But mostly it was we, we tried to do it real time. We knew we didn't rehearse but we kind of knew what the essentials of the scene were and we just plowed through them. And then what you're left with, if you have 80 hours and you want to get it down to about 90 minutes, you have to start throwing huge chunks out and just saying, well, we can't do that. We can't do that. There's no way this happened before here because this and this. Oh, God, we didn't think of that. So all those compression things. I mean, Rob edited for close to a year. Jesus. And uh, we saw a lot of different versions of it. We saw the two-and-a-half-hour version, which was, <clears throat> you know, kind of hard. Are you not even... <laughs> so at that point, when you're seeing the two-and-a-half-hour version, are you going, what the fuck did we do? Like, are you not seeing the movie? Or oh, no, no, no. We, we knew it was there. Okay. We knew it was there. And we, we God bless Rob, that he <laughs> actually sat with uh, Bob Layton and, and did all that. Bob Layton, who's also... I, believe edited every single one of Rob's other films. Wow. 
And he's worked with Chris too. And, and editors, I feel like I've, I've say this a lot. Editors rarely get all the credit that they deserve. Absolutely right. Because they really are an additional writer on a film because they have to make everything yeah. play and they control. You can do the, you can do the best comedy take in the world, but if the editor doesn't catch it at the right time, yeah. then it's not by the same token, a, uh, a director who doesn't give, uh, an editor choices and room to move, uh, is, is, is doomed to his own work, Yeah, you know, and they, they're not always perfect. You know, if you, if, if a guy delivers just a handful of shots in a scene that the editor thinks, geez, we need a lot this, you didn't, you don't have this, you don't have this. You have him over her, but not her over him, you know, and it's like that because he has to he has to make it a movie. He has to make the cinematographer and the director's work into into this movie. You know, it is an incredibly hard job. But I remember when I was about 15, I saw a movie called The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Do you know this film? Mm -mm. Amazing English film by Tony Richardson with uh, Tom Courtney and Michael Redgrave. And it's just rocking movie. And it's it was the movie where I saw what a director does and what an editor does together. Uh, it's a great lesson. I mean, it's nothing but lesson. It's a great, great movie. Anyway, break your heart. But <laughs> what it really has is this kind of oh, that's what a director does. Ah, that's what an editor does. And it's like amazing. It's a great experience. So, is that anything that you? Did you do you see that and go that makes me want to direct? Do you go that makes me not want to have to no, direct? No, no. Directors don't get enough naps. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, I've done a little bit of directing. You know, I directed a bunch of Tracy Ullman's shows, mm -hmm. HBO shows, and I directed a, a handful of spots for IFC and a, a bunch of episodes of uh, Dream On. Yes, and that's pretty much it. And one episode of Laverne and Shirley, uh, a long time ago. And it's not something I I pursue. You know, if if somebody jumps out with a with something that sounds interesting, I'd, I'd say fine. Um, but it just you know the only couple of times I've sniffed around doing that, I haven't been very enthusiastic about it because <laughs> it's just you know it's it's incredibly hard, and you really do give up minimum two years of your life. You know, and I'm running out of two years. Is <laughs> oh, <don't say laughs> we that. all are, but yeah, that's you know, true. Yeah. well, dream on. By the way. So far ahead of its time, that show. I feel like that. I feel like Dream On had the spirit of what internet, like like what internet videos are are, which is sort of the mm -hmm. dropping in the footage to create right. the subtext to, to illustrate the subtext of the scene and yeah. the quick jumps and the and that was if people haven't seen that, it was uh, early early. HBO early 80s of was, no, was it early 80s yeah, or mid 80s? Late 80s. late 80s was it late 80s yeah. late 80s yeah. yeah but it was early in there we're gonna make scripted television uh, thing instead of just show of, movies I remember that and Herman's Head being on at the same time right. that, that was the beginning of Fox Herman's yeah. Head yeah well do you know why Dream how and why Dream On got created no Universal uh, Universal I'm thinking Universal it might be another studio had I believe it's Universal had all this footage, all these TV shows that they had done, and a lot of movies that they had done that were not in packages that were shown on TV, and they weren't being shown anywhere, and they were in danger of becoming public domain. <gasps> oh. So somebody at Universal said to John Landis, can you think of anything to do with that? And he and Kevin Bright and uh, Marta Crane, uh, David Crane and Marta Kaufman. Kaufman, Kaufman thank you. 
they said, how about this? And they put together this show where this guy watched a lot of TV when he was growing up, and he flashes back to these moments. Of, Go, good, do it. So all those, that's, that's the reason it, ex- it existed to begin with. Wow. Brian Benben, right? Brian Benben. And it was like the first kind and of... And Wendy Malick. And Wendy Malick. has wow. the best eyebrows in showbiz. <laughs> she does. She was great on that. Was she his ex-wife on the yeah, show? Ex-wife that. on the show. And so as a, as a comedy fiend, which I was, it was basically watching a really fun, smart, single-camera sitcom that moved really fast and occasionally had boobs on it. Yes. Because yes, it was did. on HBO. Yeah, gotta have a boob. Yeah, yeah. When I, the ones I directed, I, we actually had flashing auditions boob auditions (laughs) i feel i feel worse about that than almost anything i've ever done in show business and it was just uh we'd get to the end of the interview thank you and someone else not me would say may we see your breasts and the girl would would you know toss them out there. and you must have felt like is this illegal no 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 i knew i knew it was like they we they, they explained that they had to do it and and some of the times they've been stung right you know on the day right uh you know and it just it just never it's never my favorite part no i no. love boobs don't get yeah, me wrong no, no, but, hey, but no, it's I sort of like sure. you know yeah but it, but it's a strange it's a strange pre- there are some directors who go literally go into directing so that when they tell people to take their tops off, they the girls will take their tops off. Those people are called Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> all of them. Um, all of, them. <laughs> of all, you mean not just two? No, nope. I got you. All right. <laughs> of all of the, are, are there things that you kind of think of as your favorite things that you've worked on that maybe aren't as mainstream, or maybe that people that you would want people to go check out if they haven't seen it? Uh, there's a lot of things that people can't check out anymore, <laughs> you know, because I've been working on the stage. The last 12 years, I've, I've done a ton of stuff on the stage, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to talk about. I can't say folks run right out and see me in our town right. at the Barrow Street Theater, because I'm not there anymore. Right. But for two months, I did that, that play, this kind of great American play at the Barrow Street. It was just uh, uh, David Cromer's production from Chicago, and a lot of amazing actors in it, and I got to be the stage manager part, which is this huge part. I learned it in eight days, Jeez. this immense part. And it was, it was not a perfect thing the first week or so, but it was, uh, as, it was, it's as good a play as there is, and it was such a great production. But stuff you can actually see, yeah. I don't know. I, I, uh, I, I, I like... Uh, um, recently, I really loved the show that Chris, the family, t- uh, family tree mm-hmm. oh, that yeah. Chris did with Chris O'Dowd and uh, and you know, all these amazing actors, and I really loved doing that. Um, you know, didn't didn't find a home on HBO. It was probably the wrong the wrong approach. But who knew? Um, I think you have to have more blood, titties, and puke. Yeah, to to be to yeah. on HBO, right? But, uh, which is not bad. No, 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 no. Not Because the audition thing. process is, you know. <laughs> That's exactly. Could you now throw up on your breast, please? <laughs> <laughs> or there will be blood. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I listen. I still, I still uh, am amused by tap when I catch a piece of it. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of people t- talk to me about Clue because they were, gr- they grew up with Clue. Clue has a big following. Yeah. And, t- and it's 30 years now. So, so when I, you know, when we did that film, it came out, it was a disastrous flop. Jonathan Lynn did not work for two years. The guy who directed really? didn't work for two years. You couldn't get another job. I mean, what a cast, though. What I an know. amazing collection of people. And boy, did we have fun lunch. Could you have, oh. you just have any Madeline Kahn stories? 
just that she was kind of awesome. <laughs> she was kind of great. And she would, every now and then, she'd launch into something. I was staying at this, my friend's cabin up in the woods, up in the, the uh, whatever it was, yep. in the Catskills. And I was, uh, I was looking through her drawers, which were all empty, of course, so she doesn't use the place very much. And I opened up and I said, Why are, what are these little chocolate candies doing in there? <laughs> and I closed the drawer and then I thought, oh, those are mouse duties. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the whole story <laughs> And it was hilarious I know it probably From me it probably does It's not even a very good Madeline Kahn impression But God that made us laugh She was just oh, She was awesome yep. Eileen too man Eileen Brennan was just She was a really funny actress And kind of a great and Whatever she did She just took a big bite of it And she was just amazing It's shitty that they are dead Yeah I mean eh. Yeah, you work with all these great people, and then sometimes you, you know, long after you've said goodbye to them, you know, they kind of stay in your life, and then everybody has to say goodbye eventually. Let's not get on this. No, we don't have to get on this. <laughs> we don't have to get on this. No, but it is, you know, that I was lucky to have worked with Madeline Kahn and Eileen Brennan for ten weeks. It was yeah, fabulous. And Marty Mull and Chris Lloyd. And that was only a ten, 10 weeks. weeks. That was ten weeks. Yeah, it might have gone a little bit over. Wow, we were hired for ten weeks. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't much longer than that. Wow. First of all, we were all we never had to go anywhere. We oh, were all true. the whole set was on stage eight, I think, at uh, at Paramount, which I could get to in my sleep at that point, yeah. you know. And we had a real pool table. <laughs> so <laughs> we'd get to the end of a take, you know, cut. And me and Marty Mull would look at each other, just a little nod, and then we'd just go up and play pool. Retire back to the billiard game. Do you ever get nervous? Because. Uh, You've done so many things that were influential to people. Do you? Did you ever? Do you ever get nervous meeting anyone? Like, do you ever kind of get like comedy nerd thing or? Yeah, um, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But but you know, I, I the card I play is pretty unthreatening. I, you know, I know that I'm not just some guy. Oh my god, it's not going to be that. You know. Uh, but if it's somebody I admire, I tell them right away, you know. And I do, if I run into people I really admire just on the street, I see them on the street, I have to say something, you know. And I hope it's not too nerdy to do that. But I, I uh, yeah, my wife um, saw Eli Wallach on the street about oh, a wow. year ago and went up to him, just said, she went up to him and said, I have to tell you how lovely I think you are. And I just, you know, and he said, thank you. Thank you very much. It's very sweet. And then he passed away, and she said, uh, when he, he died, my, and uh, Annette said, I am so glad that I went up to him and said that, because, not because it, yeah. you know, <laughs> kicked anything down the street or anything. It was, just, it was just a happenstance for him, but for her, it was a big thing to have done that. So I try never to skip that if I possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. Who, can you think of anyone that you've, that you've seen that you wanted, that you said hi to? Hmm. Because oh, people must have the thing where they go, Oh, but you're, and then they they kind of flip it back. I mean, it kind of gives you a nice, it kind of gives yeah. you a nice conversation piece because they're yes, probably going to yeah. recognize you. No, as not a, necessarily. Really? No, no, no. It depends. It depends. You know, uh, I I can't think of anybody offhand. But in, if I'm working with somebody that I really admire, I do tell them that, and I do it kind of parenthetically, you right. know, just so I don't have, so we don't have to go on. If you'd like, I'll bore you to death with how, how great I think you are. But right now I'll give you the pocket version, which is <laughs> lovely to meet you. I've always admired your work, whatever. Are you still cool with people running up and quoting Spinal Tap at you? Which I'm sure must 
happen uh, pretty nonstop. If they're, if they're not holding a weapon, they're, they're okay, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> no, there's really nothing you can say if someone's like, you know, like they start quoting and you'll be like, oh, yeah, that was in the movie. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, that was... Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it it's it kind of, not exactly every day, but yeah, it's it's fine. Doesn't bother me. Yeah, people are mainly really nice. So, you I don't know. think so. <laughs> I'm you pretty nice. I, mean, I don't know. Do you have any questions before we let this man get back into his life? God, I've, I feel like I have a million billion questions. Uh, by the way, I just want to say I, I I'm sorry I somehow missed the Folksman opening for Spinal Tap in my life. Oh, I, yeah. I'm just I will never get that moment. Well, we all, I think we did it about maybe. Six or seven times total. Uh, it was great. Yeah, it was fun. It You're was very fun. good, by the way. Guitar player. Oh, thank player. you. Thank You're a very you. Very good guitar player. I do well, watch I, him play guitar. I keep my head above water. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> Is okay. it? Are you a? Would you consider yourself a um, an actor who plays guitar? Or are you a closet like? No, I'm a guitarist, <laughs> and I just act so that I can play guitar. I, I think. If we go all roots about this, I have to say that I wanted to be an actor and assume that was my my a game very early when I was about 14 around this time I got a, a guitar and started playing it, but I so sucked <laughs> that I didn't think this would be something I could ever do. And it's not, I couldn't be a session man. I, I'm not one of those guys. You put a piece of sheet music in front of me and I nail it and pick up my check. I couldn't do that. And I'm, and I'm a pretty good improviser, but I'm not like a guy who can just go play all night. Like, well, like yeah. name your favorite guys who can play all night. Sure. You know, you know what I really love is, and I, I bow to no one, is Pearl Jam. Yeah. I have this Pearl Jam channel on my radio, and on yeah, my, yeah, and my serious, yeah. Yeah. and I go, these guys, and it's, and I'd heard a lot of their live stuff. Remember they released yeah. every live show, and this one, I bought at least five of those, you know, and it's like, I said, well, if I have a, a pet band, it's probably, I love the Chili Peppers, and I love bands that aren't together anymore you know I, I still like credence i you know i still yeah. i listen to mike bloomfield you're gonna say I creed can. for a second there i was gonna be very worried i uh, know oh, cream <laughs> creed oh creed no 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 creed's clearwater credence yeah. yes credence but cream, also, cream is cream okay also great the who and the kinks i'm you know do you know patrick warburton i know i never met him you haven't no he's a big music uh, pearl jam guy oh yeah is like he really any you mentioned one thing like, that was pearl jam 93 yeah or, yeah like he knows every pearl jam yeah. everything well i wasn't i was an early fan and then it was sort of like i just i wasn't really i, I don't know i just kind of was out of out of it for a long time and didn't uh i only bought records by dead people <laughs> or, or defunct or defunct uh, you know co combos do you have time and energy in your life for new music new bands new stuff or are you sort of like you know i kind of just cool with the oh, it depends on if something jumps out at me you know if i just discover somebody or if someone who I, I, I kind of remember from a long time ago is suddenly releasing a lot of new stuff and it's really interesting. There are artists who keep making new music. Every time Tom Waits puts out an album, it's kind of new music because right. no one else is touching that. Right. You know, no one else really goes where he goes. And it's so, and, uh, you know, there's, and, but, you know, I hear uh, like a really good pop singer like, um, oh, well, uh, let's say Lake Street Dive, you know them? No. Oh, this girl, uh, Rachel. Oh, okay. I'll Lake Street Dive. Lake Street Dive. All right. Look it yeah. up. Katie's looking it up. Oh, hell. Yeah. I feel terrible. I don't remember her name. It's something like Rachel Waters, something real simple. Is name. it? Rachel Price. Rachel Price, who is a killer 
vocalist. So I just heard her on the radio one day, and I said, ooh, what's this? And they said, Lake Street Dive. And, you know, they didn't have any major releases out, but I caught a thing on the, on the you know, a nice little thing of them doing a street corner version of uh, I Want You Back by Jackson mm-hmm. 5. And uh, I said, oh, there's something there. And so that's nice when that happens. You know, yeah. yeah. But I don't. I don't really scan everything. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't listen to the top five things that Shazam tells me to right. every day. You know, right? Just because, generally speaking, it's not for me. It's for people, you know, who are younger and just into into other stuff. You know? Yeah. But then, you know, I, I listen. I like Bruno Mars. I had no idea who he was, and then he's like, this guy puts on a great show, yeah, and he can really sing. Thing last year was. The like, witch, the Super Bowl performance he did last year—it was year. fabulous. That was yeah, it was he great. Was yeah, really good. So it's like it's good that people are still working and doing their own thing, and 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 also mining the uh, you know the uh, not mine. You don't mine rocks rich tapestry. What do you do to it? Unravel it and <laughs> put Unravel it in your it. pockets. You for tear that yeah. shit up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you make a new one. Yeah. So a couple more annoying questions, and then uh, and then we'll release you. Um, uh, is are there things left that you still want to do, or like what do you feel as a performer? Like, oh, I really want to be challenged in this way, or I really want to try this type of thing. Hmm. I I don't know. I think I I've come to love working on the stage more than anything because I I kind of love the routine of it. Mm-hmm. I know where I'm going to be at seven o'clock mm-hmm. Tuesday night, uh, and you know, there's that certain kind of age. So I I. I probably there's a lot of things i haven't done there yet there's i'd like to do a lot of you know really really hard stuff really by hard i don't mean hard to watch hopefully <laughs> but you know stuff challenging stuff on the stage and and uh comedy and drama doesn't really make any difference it's still the same kind of weird gig i got i got a chance to play j edgar hoover in uh, all the way last year on broadway with uh, brian cranston as lbj and amazing cast and uh Sometimes if you're in the middle of a gig like that and you're just standing there on stage, you go, fuck, I am so lucky. This is so cool. And because I was, you know, I grew up on Long Island, New York, and I thought, well, I'll probably always live in this house and I'll take the train and I'll do my Broadway show and then I'll come back here. It didn't work out exactly like that. I have an apartment in New York City and kind of the home hive is here. But I get to do that. I get to work on on those stages, you know, and here too, in Chicago and London, worked a lot of places. And it's uh, it's just uh, I love meeting audiences one by one. Some of them are horrible, <laughs> but you you have to give them. You, you fuck have, you, fuck you very much. <laughs> you have to do the same show for them, of course. You know, it's a, some, there, there are some of those shows where you do want to say at the end, like, uh, I mean, as a performer, of course, you bear most of the responsibility for the success of a performance, but sometimes <laughs> an audience, and you do want to say at the end, if you ever get the chance to get together as a group again, please deny that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> please do not well, congregate. There's a thing they do at Steppenwolf, which is where we did this play, Superior Donuts, before, before we brought it to New York. And uh, in Chicago, your final dress rehearsal Instead of an invited dress, which they have, you know, kind of traditionally, your friends come and so you have a positive audience, whatever, they have vet night. And they get all these guys from the, all the war vets who are living in the, in the various, you know, facilities mm-hmm. for, for, for veterans. That's the audience. 
and they are not the easiest audience. You will. <laughs> no. Now, Superior Donuts had a lot of cursing in it, and it had a you know a fist fight, and and uh, you know a lot of bad guys, and a lot of good guys who weren't that good, but were at least better than the bad guys, and. You know, and it was it, it, it's a it's a it's kind of a wonderful play, and it's a very it's a play that you can you can dig if you've been alive, you know, for any length of time. It's not about oh you have to know this, you have to know this. It's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful play. And uh, they told me what that was going to be, and I said, well, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it gets kind of rowdy. <laughs> it was one of the best experiences I ever had for two reasons. One, it was a great way to concentrate on the play. Mm-hmm. Because I, you, you couldn't take in all that they were saying. But also the fact that by, the, by about half an hour into it, they were hooked and there with you and rooting. And when the fight at the end of the thing, it was, it was enormous and it was a big mess and it wore me out every night. But you know, I was 60 years old at the time. And then we took it to New York. We kind of abbreviated it and whatever. So it was this big, sloppy, crazy fight, much bigger guy, and I, I, I best, I win. <laughs> and it was like I was Rocky for once, <laughs> the only time in my life, because the audience went nuts. They went crazy. And it was fabulous. Couldn't have been a better dress rehearsal. In these moments where you're having, because you've gotten to do a lot of amazing things, are you, it's that where you said you were on stage with Cranston and you're doing this play and mm-hmm. you have that moment where you go, fuck, I'm so lucky. Do you force yourself to stop and take time and appreciate these experiences as they're happening? Or yeah. do you, in retrospect, go, oh yeah, that was a great experience. Are you able to have the presence of mind in the moments? When you get to the end of that performance, when the people are filing out, then you allow yourself to say, you know what happened tonight about 938 uh, I I hit I hit the, the 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 you know the stink button. It was so good. It was just you know <clears throat> nailed it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I just did a, a a short run of the bandwagon mm-hmm. with Brian Stokes Mitchell, Laura Osnes, and 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 Tracy Ullman. Tracy Ullman and I were paired up. It's the third time we'd worked together, and she is one of those pr- people with whom I kind of our gears kind of mesh. You know, yeah. she's just brilliant and funny and, and awesome. And a couple of times while we were doing that, because uh, we had a couple of really big numbers together, and a couple of those times I felt that same thing. And coming off stage, I said, yes, yeah, yeah, that's it. You know? It sounds so corny, I know. No, no, no. And it's hard to share it without sounding corny, but that's where it's at. It's, uh, for me, that's, you know, those, those, are, the, those are the great pleasures. That's not corny. Corny is, I think... I've had moments where things happen, and I go, I can't fucking believe this is happening right now. And I'm literally like trying to fan molecules onto my face. To, like, <laughs> I want to remember every yeah, yeah. piece of air, every, yeah, you know, yeah. just trying to grasp onto it. As it's, yeah. And just like, I feel like I should be doing something else, too, but I don't know how else to sponge this experience yeah. up. If I'm, if I'm in a strange city for a very short period of time, and it's beautiful, and I, I, I always leave that city, even if I'm there for a month, I always leave that city going... Well, I completely wasted my visit to whatever city it was because I didn't see absolutely everything. <laughs> right. I sp- I was spent a month in London in 2012, and I exp- and I had been there before, and I and I always you know I tried to see everything. I saw a zillion things, and I still left with that feeling. I didn't really do. That. It's we beat ourselves up. You that, never. You no never sense. will see. You never will see and do everything. No. No. Maybe maybe part of wisdom is not beating yourself up every time. Very good, grasshopper. Oh, thank you. Not good at it, though. Not good at it. Are you better at that now? Are you good at that now? Uh, a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, as far as as far as the you know work on stage and yeah. and, and in films and stuff, when I when I have a good feeling about it, I 
I take the time to say that was a good one. And, you know, how often uh, do you, what, what is it every so often that makes you and Chris Guest and uh, Harry go, let's put on the wigs and do it again? You know, it's been really, really difficult because we've been a lot of different places. I've been in New York a ton. Uh, Harry's been in London and New Orleans a lot. Uh, Chris has been L.A. and all over the place, you know. Um, it's just kind of been, been hard to do that. Plus the fact it's sort of, the last time we did it was kind of, there were a lot of frustrations about it. And, uh, you know, bless our fans, they don't buy a lot, you know. Oh, (laughs) right, right, right. And we had, you know, uh, I I thought the last LP really LP. I'm so sad. The last CD (laughs) really. real. No, I was on a cylinder at first. (laughs) Put on a wax cylinder. Put on a wax cylinder. Uh, Young fellow by the name of Bell. Roll back the rug for a little dance time. (laughs) (laughs) No, we didn't know that. But it it was uh, was redoing. We redid a lot of our stuff Mm -hmm. just for our own. We we should sound better. And were we really copying the first bunch of songs or were we just adding anything new? So I just didn't think it was, you know, anyway. Yeah. It, it, if it all works perfectly, if there's just there's just so many different elements, you know, and there's three different guys doing three different things all over the globe, so it's just been difficult lately. Just to sort of wrap up, is there one? This is a really dorky question, and I apologize, but is there a uh, is there one element for you that you think makes David Saint Hubbins tick? Is there something in him that you go back to when you go, when I'm doing this guy, there's this, and maybe it's a uh, Maybe there's something that you've never talked about that you know about his childhood that made him a certain way. Like, what is the essence of that guy? Uh, Well, picture this guy looking in a mirror, and his vanity makes him adopt 100% denial. When he looked in the mirror, he saw Peter Frampton. (laughs) He saw something that cute. And he, his dress sense, he was... What we call color deaf. <laughs> uh, it, it, yeah, yeah. It, it, there's just, it, it's a guy who is, it, it feels that if he's perfectly happy with the exterior, that the interior can take care of itself. And his interior, <laughs> he thinks his interior is very well ordered. In fact, it's just quite empty. Right. You know? <clears throat> and he's always piling information in and he buys, swallows it all. And he can talk at length about uh, pretty much anything without knowing anything. He's a lovely man, really. Well, but he is in a way. He is because there, he's a romantic. There's another. There's another take on those three characters where they're unbearable assholes and not lovable. Like, you, oh yeah, you yeah. still like that guy that you described could have been a complete dickhead. Yeah, but still, the sort of the empty, clueless. There's something that you're like, oh, but it's true. I I really hadn't thought about it before. But none of the guys in that band act mean to no. anyone. No, they're the schlamazels rather than the schlemiels. You know, they, they don't even. You know what I mean? Yeah. There, there, there's, there's no. I never really thought about it's it. It's like before. the Joe Walsh song, where you like, you know, he tells you all these. He's got the Maserati in the yeah. house, and you don't, but you don't, you feel bad for him because yeah. like he doesn't know what the he doesn't know where he is half the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he just he's 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 sort of uh, he's sort of been swept up by this system that yeah. you know it's almost it's kind of not his fault in a weird. Well, it's sort knowing of way. you're delirious and being happy with it is right. is, is kind of a nice nirvana. But you don't. But these guys. But David doesn't know he's delirious, right? He really feels like he kind of. No, knows. he just thinks he's deep. There's <laughs> <laughs> a fine line, as they say. <laughs> Who wrote the joke? There's 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 a particular joke in there that always makes me laugh extra hard. It's 
uh, when the manager says that your girlfriend dresses like an Australian's Australian's nightmare, which is such a and because I dated an Australian girl for four years and I've been to Australia, so I had a very exact image of what that meant. Yeah, but. I guess I think most Americans maybe not off the top of their head would know, but that's so fucking funny. It's great, uh, Tony Hendra. That was him. Uh, yes, uh, whether he had ever used it before or not, or since, <laughs> I have no idea. But yes, he uh, that that line came out in the playing of the scene, and it was pretty much nailed it, like you say. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for letting me do what I said people do to you on the street, which is quote Spinal Tap That's at you. That's really uh, all right. And That's we didn't okay. come up against any topics where you're like, you don't want to know about that. We, I feel like we did no, okay. No, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm good with that. You, you sh- should know that Better Call Saul is going to be on Sunday night. Sunday, February Sunday 8th. Okay, and the next show is on the next night. Next night on Monday, so it'll yeah. be on at 10 p.m. on Sunday the 8th. Yes. Um, in between Walking Dead and Talking Dead. Yes. Monday, uh, Saul moves to Mondays. So we have the that. hammock. Between Walking Dead and Talking Dead. Mm-hmm. That's right. We are so smart. <laughs> I wish it was my decision. No, it's a smart bunch there. Uh, I'm, I spent a lot of time with the, all these AMC people up in, uh, at Sundance just recently. And they're nice and they're smart. And what more do you want? Yeah, it's you know? great. And, and, I, and I, have every, I have every hope that this show is a huge... I mean, for, for you and for Odenkirk and for, for Vince and everyone else, I really... And Jonathan a, Banks. And Jonathan Banks. Yeah, if you don't mention him, he comes to your house oh and my beats God. you up. Ba- you know, he... For the, for the Breaking Bad finale, we did, a, we did a little thing from the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and, oh, and yeah, Jonathan yeah, Banks yeah. was on. And this guy who you think is like... You know, he's, he, where you think he's like an Easter Island statue. Yeah. You know, like this unbreakable... Yeah. Like... Just saw this like sensitive, you know. He's like, if I mean, if I keep talking, I'm gonna get teary. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're you're spongy on the inside. Yeah. You know who else is like that? Is Ian McShane? Oh, who is like who I did a play with in in New York, and he's just he's as awesome as you want him to be. But you get that feeling about this guy that he plays so many successfully threatening characters, sure. scariest guy in the room, and everything. He's like, hey, this morning, darling. Good, had your tea. You know, he's that guy. <laughs> My Manchester accent is pretty sad, but but you know, he he's kind of that guy. And I, I remember meeting him for the first time and thinking the same thing. You know, why am I not terrified of you? Yeah, but fucking Al Swearingen. Yeah, but uh, we were on stage one time and just it was during um, the, this uh, Broadway Cares thing. We do collecting for uh, for Broadway Cares, is fight AIDS, Equity fights AIDS. So we do that for six weeks or whatever it is, twice a year. So, um, so you know, we would take turns, you know, reading that this is why you should give to thing on your way out, all this stuff at the end of the play, and uh, it fell to me to do it because I kind of had a quick version and I just did it and everything. And then Ian wanted to do one night because we just we wanted to, and it was great. He was going along really fine, and I tried to throw something in, you know. And he threw me a look, which was the Ian McShane we're all afraid of on television. <laughs> and it, I can't do it on the radio, on, you know, audio only. But it was, it was really frightening. I can picture the exact look yes, that you're talking just, about. just nailed me from eight feet away. And I, was, I shrank to the size <laughs> of a pea. Yes. If you do that to me again, you cocksucker. Yeah, yeah. And then it breaks into this yeah. room. He's the best. You are uh, amazing. And I am so Thank thrilled so to have chatted with you for an hour and 15 minutes. And uh, please come back another time if okay. you would like to. It would be amazing to have you back well, on. failing that, I will listen uh, religiously. Thank, Thank you. you so Enjoy much. your burrito, everyone. Okay. The end.
Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.